Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Hope everybody's having a good day so far. Jerome, thank you for leading us in worship. Um, I'm especially nervous this morning, and I don't really know why, so I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, let's pray together real quick. Father God, thank you so much for waking us all up this morning so that we can see your glory. God, we just pray that whatever we do in our actions, in our words today, that we glorify you. and That, you, that people see you whenever we speak, and whenever we act. God, I just pray that uh, you continue to fill us with your spirit as uh, you have this whole entire morning through lessons, through song, and through prayer. God, we just pray that, that we are lifted up in, uh, as his encouragement and that we can grow to be more like your son, Jesus. It's through him that I pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm glad God has led all of you here this morning. Um, I hope you all have been maybe taking a step out of your comfort zone this past week. Um, I know I'm uncomfortable because I have my shirt tucked in and I have a tie on, so I'm uncomfortable right now. hope you all are getting a little uncomfortable as well. Now, the, God's blessing us with the weather because uh, I was able to ride around with my windows down this week, and the first chance I get to do that, I take it. Turn that music up just a little bit louder. I, I don't mind that at all. So last week we talked about how the community around us grows along with us when we step out from our comfort zone and truly serve Jesus and his church. Now, this week I really want to talk about taking up our cross. So if you want to join me in Mark chapter 8 this morning, that's where we'll begin. Mark really emphasizes the human cause and the divine necessity of the cross in his gospel, which a lot of scholars have attributed to the preachings of the Apostle Peter and written down by Mark for us. A um, little Bible trivia for you while you guys are turning to your Bibles. Mark records far fewer teachings of Jesus than any other gospel writer, but Mark uses the words teacher, teach, teaching, or rabbi more than 40 times. A little, what, what my wife would call useless knowledge, but I consider it knowledge all good. So Mark's gospel uh, has short, concise records of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in chapter 8 of Mark, we read about Jesus feeding 4,000 people, and the Pharisees are demanding a sign from Jesus. And then Jesus gives sight to a blind man, and then Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Mark records three occasions where Jesus predicts his own death, and the first one is here. We'll start in uh, verse 31 of chapter 8. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and, the, and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Everything uncomfortable about following Jesus begins with and returns to the cross. 
The Apostle Paul wrote about this in his first letter to the church in Corinth. It says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the people that lived in Jesus' time, the cross was typically reserved for the worst of criminals among despised people. It was a foolish thing and a sign of weakness to think that the life-saving Messiah would be subject to that kind of punishment. It was kind of like beyond scandalous. Now, right after Jesus tells his disciples that he is the long-awaited Christ, he pulls the rug right out from underneath them. It says the Messiah was to suffer and be rejected and even die. It was so preposterous that Peter began to rebuke Jesus for even suggesting it. You know, if that wasn't shocking enough, I'm sure Jesus kind of looked at the other guys and like, can you believe this guy? But he then threw down the discipleship gauntlet. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, for my sake and the gospels, will save it. Want to follow Jesus? Join him at the cross. To be a follower of Christ is to join his journey of abandoning comfort and enduring suffering. A journey that is foolishness in the eyes of the world. Now, I want to tell you I have a few things that you'll have to lose when you take up your cross. That you're going to have to quit being your own boss. For as much as we want to have complete control over our lives, following Jesus requires a surrender of will. Jesus is Lord. I am not. But, you know, this is uncomfortable in today's world of find yourself, be who you want to be, and other expressive individualism slogans. But following Jesus means putting aside your own desire and allowing God and allowing him to reign supreme in us, for us. The Reverend John Stott says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Jesus paid it all on the cross. All we have to do is repent and relinquish our self-governing, accepting that union with Christ is our only hope. You're also going to have to lose some of that pride, too. One of the most offensive and crazy things about the cross of Jesus is the leveling factor it has. It gives insider, heavenly access to prostitutes, tax collectors, outcasts of society, just as much as religious cultural elite or Jew or Gentile. You know, there's a thief on the, next, on the cross next to Jesus that couldn't do anything to save himself, but Jesus still welcomed him into his kingdom. This is kind of offensive. Our pride makes it hard for us to stomach that the notion that earning or deserving are words that don't exist in God's vocabulary of grace. It's all about following Christ's example, who did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, being a follower of Jesus is about sacrifice rather than personal gain, and service rather than power. Now, this has been a bitter pill for followers of Jesus to swallow for since the beginning, since the first ones were selected. Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, said in Mark 10:37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Now I'm sure they were crushed 
to learn that the atmosphere of God's kingdom was not glory and prestige, but washing one another's feet. I mean, you want to talk about some uncomfortable and countercultural words in a world that, that seems to be dominated of what can I get out of it mentality. Like, kind of like the perfect church I was talking about last week. In relationships and faith, it's about commitment rather than consumerism. Finding ways to serve rather than desiring to be served. It's filling a need rather than finding a niche. This is another uncomfortable but crucial cost of following Christ. I want to get uncomfortable again, church. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you grab somebody and talk to them just yet. But talking about filling a need, we have a cool Easter event coming up on the 31st, at the end of this month. And that's not the need we need. We have there. I talked the money down from price, so that's a good thing. We have that taken care of. It was a little expensive this year. But there's a need here at Heartland. Gentlemen, you want to help me up? I got these papers here to fill out of all the needs that we have here at church. Talk about serving as a reach group leader, lead the Lord's Supper talk. The men are going to help me pass it out to everybody. If you run out, man, just keep coming. So everybody, if all the members, would please fill this out. I know this might feel a little uncomfortable up here, me telling you this and handing it out. But I really want this. I've been praying for this for a while to help um, fill the needs that we have here at church. Like there's uh, sp- spots on there for the youth group. If you want to help chaperone a youth event, man, we'd love to have you. It is awesome to spend time with the next generation and learn their hearts. And like I said, Easter's coming up. We'll have uh, lots of needs for that because we have eggs to be filled. We have food that needs to be cooked. Like I said, the bunny's taken care of. So there's a number of spaces for different things. You guys uh, run out of, I have plenty more. Um, if you're not a member and you, and you are thinking about joining us in our journey of serving Jesus and the community, uh, write that down on the paper. And find me or find any of the uh, elders or shepherds here and give that to them. We would love to talk to you. We want to serve God in the community alongside with you. Now, when the church... Need some more? The name of the sermon is uncomfortable. We can kind of do things different. (laughs) I get away with it this week. So when the church is working together for the same purpose, when we put aside our own vision of what church is supposed to be, and lock arms with the ones that are here beside us and say to each other, I love you. Let's work together to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I know all of us here, no matter age or how we grew up, can agree on one thing that this world needs is more love that can only be found through Jesus. That is for sure uncomfortable for many, and not just in this room, but some uncomfortable love. Now, when I was single... I didn't have to worry about too much. You know, kind of really what I really did what I wanted to do as far as finances and food purchases and everyday things like that. Um, But when Sarah and I got married, that changed a little bit. All of a sudden, it mattered what I spent my money on. Um, I learned a lot of things very quickly. I learned that paper towels are expensive, and I use too many of them. And I can't, I can no longer drink milk straight out of the carton. I can't do that. So but we will be married for seven years this October, and I have learned quite a bit. 
But the thing, but the big thing that sticks out to me is that marriage means sacrifice. It's about putting the other first. It's about sacrifice, the meaning of love, the cross. Love found its ultimate expression in Jesus Christ, who sacrificed everything for our sake. He traded his perfectly heavenly home for the fragile form of human. He endured shame, ridicule, torture, and death in our place. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. He's describing his own action and challenging his followers to do the same. Love isn't just a feeling. It's a commitment. A commitment that a commitment love that Jesus shows us as we read throughout the New Testament. And even when you read the Old Testament, we read about the same kind of commitment love God had for Israel. Israel is described as being idolatrous many times, turning away from God and worshiping idols, or I, I like to call worshiping lowercase gods. But God, like he, um, God still relentlessly pursued his people with a steadfast love, the commitment kind of love. These flowers up here on the stage represent a commitment kind of love. Carlene and Parker McNeil were married for 71 years. When you're buried for that long, a glimpse into the gospel is what you get. When you, when, you, when you talk to people that have been married for 71 years, that is commitment. And now this doesn't just apply to marriage. It's also true for the, the way we love our friends, our parents, our children, our neighbors. Let's say a younger guy might feel restless in his present situation and be tempted to abandon it for a new job or opportunity somewhere else. But for the sake of a commitment-based love for his friends, he stays. Or a teenager might feel frustrated by their parents and the rules they have. They might be tempted to break those rules. But because of their commitment-based love, it leads them to honor them instead. Now, mother might dream of saving all of her money to start her own business. But a commitment-based love... Leads her to instead use that money to help pay for her son's college tuition. A commitment-based love may not always feel rewarding. It doesn't always look like progress. But it does look like service and servanthood. Sacrifice and servanthood, sorry. Which is to say, looks like Jesus. This commitment-based love doesn't insist on its own way doesn't mean hating yourself or enduring abuse. Please do not get that out of today. It doesn't mean serving only others while you wither in loneliness and bitterness. Love is mutual. In relationships where only one party sacrifices are not sustainable. Love works at its best when each party gives more than each takes. Seeking the other's prosperity first. This will look like weakness to the rest of the world. But as most of us know, weakness is strength in Christ's economy. Now, if you turn with me to John chapter 8, I'm going to make a, take a couple more things with this before we leave here today as I wrap this up. Now, I am old enough to know that love hurts as well for many reasons. It hurts because one reason it doesn't sit idly by while the other destroys themselves. 
John chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left. With the woman standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And Jesus declared, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, when we're having conversations about love and, and Jesus this week, we want to lead with empathy and love, but also cannot leave them there. Because Jesus tells the woman, Go and leave your life of sin. Love may not seem nice all the time, but it pushes us towards holiness. We can't leave each other in brokenness. We need to commit to each other's holiness. Compassion does not mean we give up our convictions. Holding firm to truth does not mean we live without love. Now, when we are taking another step out of our comfort zones this week. Let us be open to what the woman in adultery caught, what she experienced, what I would call unexpected love. She woke up this morning and got caught in that situation. I guarantee you when they were dragging her around to that to where Jesus was, I bet she was not expecting to get love that day. We have to be open, and we have to look for Jesus and that love too. When someone is being truthful with us, we have to look and see where that love is, because it's there. We do that to get some unexpected love in return. You know, someone, we have to be out, we have to go out and be that unexpected love to other people. Someone even in this room might need it. And that may be inviting someone to lunch that may not be your first choice as a guest. Or asking someone how I can pray for you and actually doing it. I challenged the teens a couple weeks ago after services, to find somebody in the church and ask them how they can pray for them. It's been uncomfortable for them. A lot of them haven't done it yet. Keep an eye out. So if you see a teenager or me coming towards you, don't run. Okay? We just want to, we just want to ask you. I'm trying to get them out of their comfort zones as well. Because when you ask somebody how you can pray for them and you actually do it, you get to know what's on their hearts, and that relationship is building. Sorry, as a foundation for Jesus. Now, as we stand and sing this next song, if you're in need of prayers of any kind, there will be shepherds up here, and they will pray for you. And if, if you like, the whole church will pray for you as well. God has a commitment kind of love for you and I. And he showed that through Jesus' work on the cross. Let's stand and show him how much we love him for that.